Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the scientific consensus is undeniably clear. Climate change poses a threat to life on Earth as we know it. Something must be done to reverse the damage we've caused so far and prevent further harm. Or else. Is that where Bill Gates comes in? The man who helped put computers in our homes and our pockets recognizes the existential threat we face, and he has a plan. He has been working on a serious, detailed plan to reduce greenhouse emissions to zero by 2050. He shares it in his new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need. Here's how he lays out the challenge. Quote, we need to accomplish something gigantic we have never done before, much faster than we have ever done anything similar. To do it, we need lots of breakthroughs in science and engineering. We need to build a consensus that doesn't exist and create public policies to push a transition that would not happen otherwise." Unquote. Gates says the path forward rests on three foundations. Let science and innovation lead the way, make sure solutions work for poor countries too, and start now. He writes, quote, If you want to understand the kind of damage that climate change will inflict, look at COVID-19 and spread the pain out over a much longer period of time. The loss of life and economic misery caused by this pandemic are on par with what will happen regularly if we do not eliminate the world's carbon emissions. Bill Gates spoke recently with CNN's Anderson Cooper. They discussed the kinds of innovations we'll need to come back from the brink of disaster. This online event was presented by Seattle Arts and Lectures on February 18th. Hey, I'm Anderson Cooper. I want to welcome all of you in Seattle and watching around the country uh, to this uh, really exciting uh, event. Bill, thanks so much for uh, for uh, for doing this. Uh, I've read the book. The book, of course, is How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, the solutions we have and the breakthroughs that we need. Uh, as somebody who has read a bunch of stuff on climate change, I got to say this to me is the most kind of visionary and also just clear and interesting book I've read. There's a lot of uh, stuff out there, which is, as you know, a little bit arcane, but you like that arcane stuff, but <laughs> I, I really prefer that. So um, I want to get right into it for, for a couple of things, because you and I were able to spend a couple of days together for when we were doing this piece for 60 minutes, and it was really kind of eye-opening to me, the scale of what you are calling for. Can you just talk a little bit, you know, given this pandemic, why did you write this book about climate change and release it now? Yeah, I've been you know, learning about climate change for quite a while. Uh, but in 2019, what I saw was amazing to me, which is that the interest in solving the problem, particularly by young people and not just one party or the other, the interest level is very, very high. And uh, I was considering publishing the book in 2020, but then as the pandemic was developing, uh, the work of the Gates Foundation uh, on the vaccines and other tools meant that that wasn't going to be a good year. The world appropriately wanted to see uh, the pandemic as the top priority. But, you know, there's three ingredients to solve climate. One is you have to have the right goal. And uh, I'm impressed everyone's picked uh, this goal of zero by 2050. You have to have the interest level because, you know, we need voters to drive policies because uh, government uh, plays such a central role. But then finally you need a plan. And uh, I thought, you know, based on my experience at Microsoft and the foundation, thinking about innovation, which is harder in the climate space than any space I've ever worked in. You know, it's more capital, uh, just the physical scale is kind of mind blowing. I thought, hey, helping uh, to put a plan together and describe some of the work I'm doing uh, to contribute to that plan, it would be very timely as we come out of the pandemic and we have uh, Europe spending recovery money, uh, the U.S. 
looking at lots of recovery money. How do we make sure that we go full speed on uh, solving climate and really make sure people understand it's not going to be easy. It's going to be actually very, very hard, but also make it clear that it's not impossible. It really is within reach. Well, you also write about in the book that it's important not to just go after what you term the, the low-hanging fruit. And the low-hanging fruit, I, I assume, is you know electric vehicles, uh, solar panels, things that are important. But uh, not when you look at the whole pie of all the things that contribute to the 51 billion uh, tons of, of CO2 in the atmosphere every year. Um, can, and in fact, what, can you just talk about what makes up, you know, all of the, all of the, uh, the emissions? Yeah, if there's one takeaway from the book uh, that I want to have uh, people remember, it's that we have lots of sources of emissions. Uh, in fact, I've got a slide that I think could help make this point. You know, it's it is uh, passenger cars because transportation, you know, is a big thing, uh, but that's only about seven percent. It is electricity generation uh, overall, uh, but that's about twenty-seven percent. Uh, and you know, you have other things in transportation like planes, uh, but then you have this the three other sectors that people may not associate with uh, solving this problem. Uh, you've got agriculture, where you have uh, livestock and uh, fertilizer manufacture and uh, animal uh, manure handling, uh, and that's 19%. Uh, and you've got heating and cooling buildings, which we mostly use uh, natural gas for that, that's 7%. And then the biggest single sector is actually manufacturing uh, at 31%, and that's that's where you've got cement, uh, that's where you've got steel, those are the, the two biggest, uh, but it's pretty broad. You know, we make a lot of physical stuff, and if you look around, uh, you know, and you see uh, the plastic, the paper, the wallboard, the, you know, the cement and steel that makes the building uh, stand up, uh, you know, every physical thing, sadly, is associated with some level of emissions, and we have to rework uh, the way that we make those things. To me, to me, that is the most kind of eye-opening thing that that comes across in the book, and it's hard for me to still wrap my mind around it. Um, you, you know, you talk about the room you're sitting in. People who are watching right now, maybe they're at home, they're watching on a computer screen. The plastic that their computer is made out of, the uh, the wood that their desk is made out of, how it was cut, the machines probably use gas uh, for to, to run, the, uh, the cement in the building they live in, the steel the building is made out of. Every aspect of what you see needs to uh, have innovation, needs to change the way we make it, right? That's right. Uh, you know, we, we, the physical economy has gotten all these things to be so cheap that you know most people have never been to a cement plant or a steel plant. They, you know, the the fact that uh, there were you know brilliant innovators that drove those things, uh, you know, it's incredible. And the you know the recipe for how we make those things is kind of fixed uh, because we know it's reliable and and cheap. And so to to be open-minded to say, no, we need to change those building codes. We need to, to build a market for something that at first, uh, you know, green steel costs a lot more than normal steel. Green cement costs almost three times uh, what normal cement costs. And so how do you get going? How do you get on that learning curve where you start to buy some and the more you make, you figure out just like happened with solar panels, that volume drove the price down as companies competed to uh, make it at lower price. When you don't have a market, that doesn't happen. And so bootstrapping across all those areas of emissions that we we drive the R&D, we drive the, the innovators, but then as they come up with things, we have buying that, that gets us on that scale up learning curve to get the price way, way down and get a green premium that's either very, very small or uh, near zero, that's the, the path to nirvana. 
I want to go over the course of this. I want to go to some of the details on things like cement because it's something, you know, I never really thought much about. But the, the scale of the problem does seem at times insurmountable. But just can you just talk kind of broad, broad picture first? Guy, what what are you doing about climate change? Yeah. So the given the innovation agenda, there's policy things for all of it. You know, funding basic R and D and R and D budgets in these areas had, had not gone up as we got to the 2015 uh, climate talks. Uh, and so that kind of got on the agenda there and it's, it's still, there's a lot that has to be done. Uh, so lots of things about policy, but there's kind of a pipeline for innovation. Uh, in fact, this is a, another one where I've got a slide uh, that I used to describe it that might be helpful. You know, way at the beginning, it's just basic R&D. It's like, you know, the National Institute of Health working on uh, biological things. Then we want to bring in uh, smart people and fund them even before they their ideas are are uh, they can raise money on a private basis. So we have thing where we're bringing smart people together called fellows uh, early stage. Then something can be venture funded. Uh, so that's breakthrough energy ventures uh, that. Uh, we put together several funds and that's going super well. And then finally is this piece about buying the products, uh, which we call Catalyst. Uh, and that together with these market shaping policies, you know, can get to where at least for some of the categories like passenger cars over the next 10 to 15 years, as the range goes up, the charging stations are pervasive, the charge time, you know, goes down to be like filling a gas tank, you know, then you can get a zero green premium. But that one is the most mature of all the sectors. So we have to apply this pipeline across all those different areas of emissions. And I, you know, I'm I'm working on advocacy, but specifically fellows, uh, the venture fund and catalyst uh, to accelerate that that pipeline. And you can see if over time, well, I hope what that means is that green premium uh, which is over five trillion a year right now goes down by about ninety five percent. I just want to break down this chart a little bit because uh, I'm, I'm I'm confused by charts always, so it takes me a moment. But uh, for folks at home or who are watching, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures is a is a uh, an investment fund that you started about I think it was six years ago. You recruited a bunch of super wealthy people who everybody would know their names, and I think you raised a billion dollars. I think now there's a second billion dollars that you've raised. And you're looking for not just some quick way to make money. You are looking for people who are willing to invest long range because a lot of it, like hedge funds and stuff, they invest for five years and then they all want their money back and their huge returns. You're saying for real development, for real innovation, you need a 20 year investment maybe for in, in some things with no guarantee, frankly, that it's going to work. Right. So the most mature part of this in terms of uh, what I'm doing is Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And it's exactly as you say, we are uh, just announced the second fund uh, and that's going well. We found lots of amazing companies, although we'll have a high failure rate. We only fund companies uh, that if their work is successful, uh, can eliminate a half percent of the 51 billion tons of emissions. And so we need you know, companies in steel and cement and other things. Because that ventures piece has gone so well, and they've been able to work with other investors to raise that money, we're putting a thing at the earlier stage, fellows, where we just, you know, fund people at a quarter million a year to to shape their ideas, uh, coming out of big companies or academia, and then we're putting something that is after ventures, which is the catalyst buying piece. So those two pieces, uh, I'm just putting together this year to complement the ventures piece because it's gone so well. And, and the just so people know, the green premium that's on that chart, which starts out obviously higher on the left-hand side and then gradually gets smaller. Just explain, green premium is the extra cost uh, making it carbon, uh, no, uh, making it with zero carbon emissions uh, adds on to the price of the development, the price of, of the actual product. And you want that green premium to go down, just like solar plant panels used to be far more expensive because more you know innovation is taking place more people are using them the price actually goes down and the quality actually goes up that's what needs to happen in basically everything related to carbon emissions all products right exactly so the green premium uh is very different for different products 
Uh, and uh, I promise you I only have this, uh, maybe my last slide, but I, I love slides. Uh, the, uh, I love that you travel with slides. You bet. Uh, you know, PowerPoint, that's uh, uh, my, my favorite. So for passenger cars, where Tesla and others have done a brilliant job and even have people like GM saying as of 2035, they're only gonna make electric cars. So that clearly shows that they think that the demand in the market will shift over. Today, you pay more upfront uh, for an electric car and you have to worry a little bit about the range and where you're gonna do the charging. But as the batteries get better, uh, those prices go down, we'll go from what is a fairly small green premium today I show on this slide, uh, I'm comparing a Chevrolet Malibu to a Chevrolet Bolt, which is the, an electric vehicle. And I, you know, I show about a 15% uh, green premium there. Uh, that's as of today, but I expect in the next 10 to 15 years, uh, actually the electric car would be preferable. So that's you know, amazing. Eventually you won't have to have tax credits and zero emission requirements. On the other side of the slide, though, I show a, uh, a product that we haven't uh, made progress on, which is cement. And there you see that today's cement's $125 a ton. And yet, if you try and make it in a green way, uh, it basically doubles the price. Mm -hmm. And so that's one where we're not, you know, we don't have a, a Tesla of cement. It's not clear, you know, where that will come from. Uh, but we have to drive for that uh, because cement is responsible just by itself for 6% of all those emissions. So if you want to get to zero, you can't skip cement. And, and what, the thing that's fascinating to me about cement, which I never is a sentence I never thought I would actually say, is that, which I read in your book, is that if you make a ton of cement, you release a ton of CO2. I mean, it's a one-to-one it's a -one ratio. Yeah, it's incredible that between heating up the limestone, uh, where you're generally burning a hydrocarbon like natural gas, and the chemical reaction where you're pulling that calcium out, it's actually CO2 that gets released. And so you have those two sources. And cement is very, very cheap. And the number of cement plants in the world is, you know, over 10,000. And so we're asking every one of those to put some new equipment in. Uh, there's a little bit of progress. There's a you know company, Carbon Cure, that, that cuts it by 10%. Uh, and company other... Breakthrough Energy Ventures has invested in, right? Exactly. Uh, so that's a start. Uh, but wow, we have to get to 100%. And that, uh, it's not even clear how, how to go about that. But you know, we have lots of people with great ideas. And if we back them and give them policies, and even when the premium is still, uh, non-zero, we create some demand for them to scale up, then we can get the same thing to happen there that happened with the electric electrified passenger car. This company, Carbon Cure, which you're talking about, is a Canadian company that, that Breakthrough Energy Ventures invested in. And one of the things that you showed me that they do is, is they, uh, they take CO2 and they actually inject it, one day perhaps re-injecting it, uh, into the cement itself it turns into a mineral and uh, it it hardens. So you're trapping certain amounts of CO2 inside the very cement that has created CO2. Yeah, that's a it's a fantastic thing. And you need a little less cement because when they put that CO2 in there, it bulks it up, uh, but maintains all of the kind of strength and durability that you expect out of cement. So now how the building potentially does that eliminate from well, the at right now, the thing they're actually uh, have a lot of uh, North America cement makers using today, it's only a 10% reduction. They have a, a next generation uh, that they're piloting, which they hope will get up to 30%. And so if you take Carbon Cure, and there's you know maybe a dozen other companies with uh, different ways of reducing that, if you combine those together, you could see that green premium really starting to come down. But, uh, you know, even 10% is is fantastic uh, because you got to get started somewhere. The um, With the pandemic going on, I mean, did the pandemic, does the pandemic and climate change have things in common in your mind? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question because I would have come out with the book last spring uh, if the pandemic hadn't come along and became, you know, such a big focus for me in the foundation works and for the world that, you know, it was completely open-ended. Uh, you know, would we be able to invent a vaccine? Could we, you know, make that at scale? And so I, I pushed uh, the book into this spring. Even now, I, you know, I said, okay, is this timely? Well, the idea that government needs to have a lot of experts come together and figure out what the risks are, you know, earthquake risks, war risks, tornadoes, you know, climate change and pandemics have been neglected. Uh, and, you know, now we realize in the case of the pandemic, the tragedy is gigantic. And yet if, if we invested in advance, it would have been, you know, 90% less damaging. You know, we would have all been more like Australia than uh, the United States or, or most of Europe. And so in the sense of reminding us the importance of government investing in advance, uh, you know, the pen, this is like the pandemic. Now, uh, climate change requires more innovation than just, you know, a single vaccine. And the scale of it is, you know, in a different league. I, you know, I'd say it's almost 100 times more difficult. And so we need a broad uh, set of people to care, uh, to weigh in on this, uh, uh, because, you know, it, it just gets worse over time uh, if you don't invest up front. So let's talk about what the future does hold if we do not get to zero emissions by, by 2050. And uh, obviously, you know, uh, different people have different theories, but I just had a son. He's not, he's almost going to be one years old in a couple of months. If he lives to 80, the turn of the century, what will he see? What will the impact be? Yeah, that's a super important point, which is that if we continue these emissions, uh, or even reduce them by 50%, the temperature just keeps going up because CO2 stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. And so then you get, you know, the ice melting, so sea levels going up a lot. You get natural ecosystems like coral reefs go away. Near the equator, you won't be able to grow crops or work outside. And so they have gigantic human migration. You won't you know, be able to work outside. That's right. The human body sweats uh, in order to uh, avoid overheating. But if you get a high enough temperature and high enough humidity, that stops working. And so you literally uh, cannot work outdoors. And a lot of the poorest on the planet live near the equator where they do outdoor farming or construction. And so all those people will, because in the summer they can't uh, do that work, they will try to migrate uh, to the more temperate zones. And so the, the cataclysm in terms of the instability that comes will be pretty gigantic. It won't just be wildfires or, or floods. And you know we can't predict exactly how bad it'll be, but certainly by the turn of the century, it'll be the, the most negative thing that's ever happened to humanity. The most negative thing that's ever happened to humanity. I mean, you're talking more, more than you know World War One, more than World War Two. Yeah, the death rate per year will be uh, over five times what the current uh, pandemic is, and it'll just be going up over time uh, as you get hotter and hotter. So the and migration, the, the the people fleeing the war in Syria that we've seen, that's that's tiny compared to what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's incredible how you know, partly because of, of uh, uh, how hot it is, they had a lot of crop failures in Syria and that created a lot of tension. And then you had the political unrest and just a few million people migrating up to Europe caused a lot of turmoil, you know, political uncertainty. And this, you know, this is, uh, you know, more than 20 times as big in terms of the number of people who will be trying to move into temperate countries. You know, some people listening to this are going to say, okay, look, that's a doomsday scenario. And, you know, how can you predict something that's going to be 80 years from now? Uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, there were books about the population explosion, predicting mass starvation uh, by now, and that hasn't occurred. So smart people believe that in the 60s and 70s. Well, what did they get wrong and why are you right? 
Yeah, then that was an incredible thing in that uh, they missed two things. One was that we could take our seeds uh, in what was called the Green Revolution, funded by Rockefeller Foundation and others, and make them dramatically more productive. And so Asia, which faced mass starvation, was able to grow more crops. The other surprise was that as families got wealthier and as kids survived through their childhood uh, and as women got more educated, then families chose to have far less children. And so ironically, in the places with the worst health in the world, like parts of Africa, families have six children. Uh, whereas as, as we've improved health, uh, there's been this demographic revolution that even in places like Mexico, uh, they're now having just replacement levels. So the population growth, uh, because of those health advances and other things, went way, way down. And so we were able to feed uh, Asia. Um, but, you know, this time, uh, unless we drive the innovation, we, it, they won't arrive in time. So the why 2050 and, and why will that uh, and why is that the sort of the, the final, the point of, of no return? Yeah, that's a super good question. I mean, honestly, if we could do 2040, then you get less heating and you get less damage. And this idea of helping with adaptation, helping with better seeds and flood control uh, that we are going to have to invest a lot in it would be better. 2050 is basically the earliest date that it's plausible that we could get to zero. And it requires an immense amount of effort. The biggest thing humanity's ever done. You know, it'll make all the other things, uh, you know, ending wars or pandemics, you know, will be very small because this is such a gigantic retooling that has to happen literally for the entire globe. And so this thing is going to be very hard. You know, people will say, hey, let's get it done in 10 years. We'll just divest some stocks or we'll make companies report their missions. You know, sadly, it's way harder than that. And, and thinking it's easy almost hurts the cause. We have to admit uh, that it's going to be super hard. Uh, but it's not impossible. The, you know, the kind of innovations, whether it's, you know, personal computing or a coronavirus vaccine, you know, the ingenuity of, of humanity, if you get lots of people working on lots of ideas, uh, that's what makes me optimistic, which is the, the bottom line of the book, is that we can't avoid a climate disaster. But, but the problem is, it's not just convincing the United States. First of all, given that it's been hard to convince people in the United States to everybody to wear masks, um, I think there's a lot of people out there who think, well, that doesn't sound very promising that we have to you know, get everybody on board with this. Is that even possible? And also, it's not just the United States or Europe that has to agree to this. It's everybody. And right now with China and India, I mean, they're, they're building coal plants right and left. Now, that's a super good point. The U.S. Uh, is only responsible for about 15 percent of all emissions. China passed us by in total emissions uh, a few years ago. And so, uh, if it just the rich countries do it, uh, we do not succeed. But the innovation power, the U.S. has still got, you know, over half of the world's innovation power. And so, you know, if we take the green premiums across the products and bring those down by something like 95 percent, then it's not just makes it easier for the U.S. to zero out our emissions. It makes it easier for all the countries, including India, which has not yet committed to getting to zero. China has a commitment to get there by 2060. Hopefully they'll accelerate that. Hopefully they'll uh, stop building coal plants because as you say, both in China and uh, other countries, they're still involved in making more coal plants, you know, which works you know, absolutely the wrong way. As soon as you build one of those plants, you're gonna wanna run it for uh, longer than 30 years. And so, you know, it's kind of proof that you're not serious about uh, getting to zero. So that that makes us a big challenge. Uh, uh, but, you know, as you bring green premiums down, it gets easier uh, to make stronger reduction commitments. It's hard, though, because, you know, I mean, you spend a lot of time in India and, and the developing world. If 
you know, people want a, way, a better life and the chance to have a better home or a better, you know, better roads and everything, you know, that's what human beings want and, and deserve. So you, it's yeah, hard to say, to say to the, you know, people in a country that doesn't have as much as the United States say, well, look, you got to sacrifice. That's a super good point. The, you know, those countries aren't responsible for most of the emissions <clears throat> that are up there in the atmosphere causing this heating and they're still trying to provide very basic levels of shelter and uh, air conditioning to deal with the heating, uh, light at nighttime so their kids can study. And so we can't, just by reducing consumption globally, that is not the just way to solve the problem. It will help if rich countries, you know, aren't emitting as much, even as we move these processes to zero, reducing the volume of emitting activities will help us, uh, but that alone is not the path to get us to zero. And so we've got to be able to say to India in 2050, when you build new buildings, use green cement and green steel, and that either we're subsidizing part of that or the innovation has meant the extra cost to do it that way is quite modest. The other thing that people don't really focus on, which uh, you thankfully are, is the electrical grid, um, which again, I knew nothing about, but it's actually kind of fascinating what you say about it. You've actually kind of mapped it out and shown that, you know, because right now in California, I think no nuclear plants, they, they said there'll be no new nuclear plants and, you know, wind and solar will provide all that we need. You say that's not actually possible. Yeah, that's an unfortunate thing is that even though the cost of solar and wind have come down so much and we should install massively more of it, the reliability of your electricity uh, is super important. And you can get long periods where, say, a cold front sits over the Midwest and shuts down all of the wind and solar there. And so either we have to have a miracle of being able to store uh, that much energy, which is 20 times more difficult than doing electric cars, or we need some source of power that can run even when that those weather conditions uh, are very, very bad. And that, you know, at scale, that would mean either nuclear fission or nuclear fusion. And so we should do our best to get this storage miracle uh, so we uh, can do it that way. But if we can't do it that way, then one of the two nuclear technologies will be very important so that you know, you're not freezing to death when you have these super bad uh, weather conditions. And the open source grid model uh, that Breakthrough Energy Science is building is to let people play around with, okay, what are your assumptions about the transmission grid that's gonna have to be a lot uh, bigger than it is today? What are your assumptions about the generation and use of energy? And can we maintain the low cost and the high reliability while not driving the price up dramatically? Because actually what you're calling for is actually more electricity, greater use of electricity, and the current electrical grids, That's it's just not going to be possible with the current grid, but explain the problem of updating the, the grid. Right. So the electricity is really the only source of energy that it's clear uh, we can make zero emissions. And so instead of heating your house with natural gas that does cause emissions, you'll buy what's called a, an electric heat pump that does the heating and cooling by using electricity. And so as you get that electricity to zero, uh, you avoid those emissions. But as we shift that to electricity, and as we get the passenger cars and we shift them to electricity, you're going to have to grow the electric grid to be two to three times bigger, the total amount of electricity generated, because the energy's got to come from somewhere. Two to three times bigger than it currently is. Yeah, in the United States and in other countries where it's growing because demand is growing, it's even higher than that. And so the difficulty of permitting transmission uh, across federal lands or private lands where you need, you know, all these uh, rights to go these long distances, that's proven to be so difficult that very little new transmission is being built. And yet, if you model out what a green future looks like with 
more electricity and keeping it reliable, we need dramatically more transmission. So that needs to get on the political agenda that is there a, a technology that makes that more acceptable? Do you need to pay people for the benefits that giving those right-of-ways provides? Uh, and and so it's, you know, it's not happening and yet we only have 30 years to get all that transmission done. See, this is where I get really depressed because, you know, this is kind of the thing, once you start to scratch away at this, you know, okay, we still need nuclear power for 20% of, of you know, even if wind and solar, uh, but then there's the problem with, you know, more electricity and the, and the grid. I don't understand how you seem optimistic and certainly, you know, you make it seem possible, but it seems just really, really friggin' hard. It's hard, absolutely. I mean, but if you look, you know, when we had a world war, you know, we shifted the economy uh, and the amount of innovation, even during that four-year period, uh, was was quite phenomenal. But and that's what it has to take. I mean, you're talking about a global effort. Do you see signs of that? I mean, obviously, the U.S. is now going to go back into the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah, that's a good thing. And, you know, we are at an early stage on this problem. And... Uh, you know, we've got the goal and we've got a lot of energy, which, you know, thank God for that. That's the only way this gets done is particularly if the younger generation is speaking out about this as a real priority, but it's daunting. And, uh, you know, as, as you're shifting these industries, there are regions of the country that feel that that might hurt them. And so in addition to all this innovation of the bigger electric grid, uh, you know, which hopefully those things are providing a lot of new jobs. You have to think about the areas of the country that, you know, have hydrocarbon extraction and related things uh, that are part of their job space. And how do you involve them in the new activities? Uh, you know, so they, you know, the people who are more adept politically than I am have reminded me the idea of making sure there's no significant losers in this is as important to drive the agenda as the uh, clear plan for the innovation part. Foods like Beyond Meat, you, I mean, that, that's something you've obviously in, invested in. How much of a help is that? Yeah, so the agricultural sector, which is that 19%, uh, you know, is, is the third, manufacturing 31, electricity 27, and then 19. You know, uh, part of that, uh, 6% are the cows, uh, you know, they they burp, they fart, the, and that's methane, which is a powerful greenhouse wait, gas. Wait a minute, 6% of the greenhouse gases are from cows burping and farting. Exactly. Uh, and, How you know, you people, people have been trying to change what they feed them or, you know, think about different things. But a more radical approach uh, is what Beyond Meat impossible and many other companies are doing which are saying hey let's make a product let's say that's like ground beef uh and that uh in terms of you know animal cruelty greenhouse gases uh and eventually you know the how good it tastes and the cost can actually eventually compete there and it's been great as impossible and beyond to put their products out in various restaurants the demand uh for people who care about this uh, has actually been pretty high, uh, and they can probably engineer in some health benefits as well. So uh, that artificial meat market has actually surprised me. Five years ago, I would have said agriculture was the area I was most worried about. Uh, the innovation there uh, is is coming pretty quickly. Now it needs to be scaled up, just like the electric cars. But now I worry more about the manufacturing because I'm seeing so much innovation in this agricultural space. So cement, steel, that is what really worries you right now. That's the hardest one that we've made the least progress on and where the green premiums are very, very high. And, you know, that means it's just hard to get anybody to buy green cement. Uh, now, we want the government to buy some. We want, you know, tech companies that do very well uh, to buy some. We have to bootstrap it. Uh, you know, I, I call it catalyst. We have to bootstrap that down. But because uh, the more they buy, the, the more companies and people who can afford it buy green products or you know green technology. That's going to lower the cost for everybody else. And right, and, and consumers 
in the case of their car and their beef, uh, they can participate in that. And I, you know, I'd say that after their political voice is the next most important thing uh, that they can do is, is, you know, be willing to pay a bit of a green premium uh, for these products. So just like solar did, uh, it comes down and, you know, eventually the quality and price actually are, are better. That's the zero green premium case. We've got a bunch of questions from uh, from people in the audience, and I, I want to ask you a couple of them. Um, one of them, it, I don't have a name on this one, but it, uh, can you update us on Terror Power, the documentary with you discussed the venture, but the China-U.S. trade war had put the effort on hold of what's happening now. Terror Power is a company uh, that you've... Uh, that uh, that you've invested in, that's building a uh, a new kind of nuclear reactor. Exactly, a so-called fourth generation reactor, uh, which you know may be necessary to have uh, reliable electricity even during tough weather periods. Uh, as the questioner uh, says, our initial strategy was a joint venture in China, uh, but as the uh, relationships with China deteriorated. Uh, the U.S. government canceled that. And fortunately now, uh, the U.S. government is funding uh, advanced reactor demonstration project here in the U.S. And so TerraPower won a $4 billion project uh, to build that. So over the next five years, we'll demonstrate that it really works and we'll show that the safety and the cost are very, very different than the previous generation. Uh, you know, so we have to prove out the engineering, uh, which is, you know, uh, going to take amazing work. But we also uh, have to convince the public that this would be acceptable in order for it to make a significant uh, contribution to climate change. And the only reason I'm involved at all is because I see it might be a needed piece of an overall climate change solution. We're, we're, you know, obviously people are very concerned about nuclear. There's a lot of folks who just, you know, believe that it's impossible to make it safe. The picture that we just had up is actually sort of a mock-up of fuel rods, uh, which is where uranium is stored in your in this uh, prototype for, for a new reactor. You say that just on the safety front, that basically your, your reactor, it's going to be cheaper to make because the, the cost for making reactors on the old model and I know you say that we, they've been using the same essential model for nuclear reactors since the 50s and, and 60s. They've just been adding on to it. So the costs are prohibitive. So this is actually cheaper to make. It's automated. So it doesn't have as the potential for human error. But just on a scientific basis, you are claiming that this, your, this reactor will be safe. And, and can you just explain kind of briefly how you can say that? Yeah, so the problem with reactors is that as you take that energy out of the uranium, which, you know, a single uranium atom provides a million times as much energy as uh, uh, hydrocarbon. You know, so you think, wow, this is incredible. The problem is that as the uranium splits, some of the products are radioactive. And of course, radioactivity is very dangerous. And so you have to prove that your reactor can't release those radioactive materials so they leave the reactor. In the past, that was done with all sorts of humans and, you know, certain containment. Here, we need to say that there's no high pressure anywhere in the plant uh, that, you know, if something breaks, then that, you know, it's, it's pushing those radioactive materials around. You have to say that all the heat can be stored there so you don't overheat anything that uh, is inside that reactor. And... Nobody's been willing to start from scratch. Nobody's been able to use digital simulation. Uh, all the old reactors were based on an idea from the 1950s that used water, very hot, high-pressure water. Here, we're actually using uh, a sodium uh, liquid metal, uh, and so the safety is, is built in. It doesn't depend on you know, the operator doing the right thing. It just... It's just physics. The, the old um, reactors were light water reactors, which the water ran over uh, and around the, those fuel rods that you were showing. You have liquid sodium, which can't reach the boil, a boiling point. Is that right? That's right. I, I don't know if we brought up the picture of the, uh, the rods, but the water is replaced by this liquid sodium, and it flows over those rods and takes the heat out 
and then that's used for the electricity generation. Sodium doesn't boil like water does. It just stays in that nice liquid form, even you know when the reactor shuts down, which was the problem at uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima, uh, you can't have that overheating condition. And so, you know, we have to start by building the demo plant and getting the regulators to say, yes, this is incredibly safe. And then if we get to that point, which I'm hopeful we will, uh, then we've got to go to the public and say, have an open mind about a completely new generation uh, because climate change is coming and you still want reliable electricity. The um, Todd wants to know, do you think it's possible do you think it's possible to develop a technology to reliably and safely remove a significant volume of carbon from the atmosphere? That's a super good question. Uh, there are two places you could try to grab the carbon dioxide. One is in the chimney of a power plant or steel plant. You know, there's tons of CO2 coming out. Now it's coming out with all sorts of other chemicals. So that uh, is called point capture. The other thing is to actually just have a plant that sits and as the wind blows, it has some process that's pulling those 410 parts per million of CO2 out of the air, and that's called direct air capture. There are companies like Climeworks or Carbon Engineering who do that, but the cost per ton that they pull out is over $400 right now. And so that, you know, is way too and expensive. you're talking about 51 billion tons a year. Exactly. So if you multiply by 400, that's 20 trillion a year. And, you know, <laughs> that's that's a quarter of the, the world economy. Uh, you so there are... 20 trillion? Really? Yeah. Yeah. At $400 a ton. Yeah. <laughs> so the, you know, Breakthrough Energy is investing in a number of these uh, carbon capture companies. Uh, you know, Elon Musk just did a big prize challenge to reward somebody who's doing that well. But you, it always, it always costs money to pull the CO2 out. So, you know, that, that's an infinite green premium because there's no value. I think, you know, the clean approach costs, the dirty approach costs zero. This is just an extra cost. But for some of the emissions, we may have to use direct air capture. And, you know, the question is, can you get it down to $100 a ton or lower uh, to make it it uh, affordable. We, we've got two questions from viewers uh, about uh, what they can do. And, and but before we get there, I just want to ask you something with the kind of some of these questions are, are based on, which is essentially the, the you know, criticism of you that, that you no doubt have heard, which is, you know, is it hypocritical for you to be promoting all these things when your carbon footprint is extremely large? Yeah, I, I probably have one of the largest carbon footprints because I have a, a plane and, you know, my house is big. Uh, and so, you know, I'm funding at over seven million a year approaches like for sustainable uh, green aviation fuel and for uh, carbon capture to eliminate that footprint. Now, I hope to do that in a way so that not only am I limiting my footprint, I'm also helping products like green aviation fuel get more demand so that, that it scales up and the premium there, which is almost 300%, uh, can be brought down. But, you know, no doubt I'm, you know, I have to plead guilty that uh, my footprint is, is very large. Uh, now, I can afford to kind of in a brute force $400 a ton way uh, by that uh, to zero, most people can't do that um, because that, it's, that, it's- That gets the question Ray asks is, what is the best way for those most able to invest to help those most in need of climate change mitigation investment? Yeah, so our, our goal is to eventually have a thing that uh, even individual consumers can give, uh, you know, a few hundred a year to or what, you know, ever uh, corresponds with their carbon footprint and that it's buying these green products. It's catalytic in bootstrapping those markets. Today, there's not that good of a vehicle. Uh, there are some offsets out there, but the, you know, the duration of the benefit, say, of some of the tree planting schemes is, is still being examined. So we need to have high quality offset things, uh, including this program catalyst that people who care about can even 
you know, on a yearly basis, uh, help out with, with a donation. Uh, Emily also has a question. What's the best way for those of us with middle-class incomes to combat the, the climate crisis? I mean, for anybody, what, you know, people obviously you want to, many people want to do as much as, as they can. What do you recommend? Yeah. So there's three things. First is their political voice. Uh, and, you know, so that we can get both parties engaged, maybe not with identical views, but, you know, agreeing this is a super big problem. And so over the next 30 years, we don't have a stop and start approach that would prevent large companies from building a new steel plant or cement plant because they don't know if the uh, the rules are going to incentivize that or not. So, you know, number one is your political voice. Number two is, is your consumer activity for a lot of these products, and there'll be more and more over time. Uh, and then the third is that we should have a giving vehicle either to uh, climate advocates, and there's a lot of great organizations who do that, or to this thing that's going to buy green products uh, and bring those prices down called Catalyst. Uh, and so, yes, we need broad-based involvement. It's This is not something that just a few very rich people can come anywhere near solving. We're going to we have to wrap up soon, but I mean, just what what is it? I mean, I know you've sort of talked about this, but given your experiences with uh, the computer revolution, but I mean, what is it that gives you hope about this? <laughs> yeah, it 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 is hard. Um, it's you know, making new software is way easier. Even making new medicines, uh, despite the regulatory uh, uh, burden, which is appropriate for the safety concerns, that's way easier. You know, here, it's so broad what we're doing. You know, I almost wish I could show people just pictures of cement plants and steel plants and how many there are. Uh, and it's it's super hard. But the, you know, the energy behind this and, you know, the desire to maintain these natural ecosystems, the desire to keep things livable uh, near the equator, I do think that's, you know, coming into gear. During the pandemic, I worried that people would become much more short-term, and yet uh, the if you poll particularly young people about climate, they're more committed than ever, and the governments are responding to that with their various recovery plans. So, you know, there are days that it can seem like uh, it's too tough, but overall, uh, I do think we'll come together and solve the problem. Does this take away from all the work that you and your wife Melinda are doing through the, the, the foundation? I mean, are you able to do all this stuff? Yeah, in terms of our time and resources, uh, our primary focus is the, the foundation. And, you know, it'll stay that way. I'm, you know, I put several billion into climate already. I'll put several billion more in. But the bulk of the wealth is going to the the Gates Foundation for things like the global health work. And, you know, that, you know, in terms of the team that gets how to, to get rid of polio and malaria, uh, you know, we've made that a priority and we're going to stay constant and get rid of those infectious diseases. So, uh, you know, I'm lending my voice and some resources to climate, but, you know, we need a huge, broad coalition of people, uh, you know, and, you know, I hope my book, you know, gives them a sense of, okay, what are all the pieces uh, that go into this? Uh, but, you know, galvanizing government is not the work of just a few, a few people. It's, it's got to be, you know, millions of people. You said you put, you put so far $7 billion into uh, trying to come up with innovation on climate change. And you're going to do it. Two, two billion. Right. Two billion. Okay. And, and you plan to do like what what lies ahead i mean do you plan another to another 2 billion in the next 5 years uh and that you know that's breakthrough energy ventures terrapower uh you know carbon engineering lots of the companies that are trying uh to do low green premium work do you get personally upset when an investment doesn't pan out i mean you're investing in a lot of stuff which just I mean, I, I talked to you about this a couple of days ago. That sounds, you know, even to you, sounds crazy. You know, 80% of these companies will end up not, uh, you know, having a breakthrough. But if 20% do, 
you know, and, you know, some in every one of the areas of emissions, uh, you know, that is, is phenomenal. And even economically, uh, you know, one of the battery companies, QuantumScape, went public and, you know, it's highly valued now uh, because people see that when you get a good solution, eventually the volume, the demand for the green products is going to be super high. So uh, there's tons of failures, uh, but some of them will be like a Google or a Microsoft with, you know, mind-blowing success. The... Um for those who uh, who haven't read the book or just ordered it and are waiting <laughs> for it, what um, what is the number one thing that they should take away right now from from what lies ahead and, and what possible solutions are or what the biggest part of the problem is? Well, the understanding the fifty one billion and some of the sources, uh, understanding this idea of the green premium, and understanding where their voice can be super important. And, you know, people who say it's impossible, we need to convince them that's wrong. People who say it's easy, we need to convince them it's wrong. Uh, no matter what else your politics are, you know, hopefully climate, uh, you know, at least some of the approaches to solving the problem, we realize that, you know, we're all in this together, including that need for global cooperation. So, you know, kicking off the maturity of the field to, you know, use these 30 years uh, as best we possibly can with the innovation pipeline being uh, a big part of that, but it's it's very policy enabled. So, you know, I hope they, uh, you know, feel like I've educated them, shared some of my own learning journey uh, and how fascinated I am by this, um, you know, and that they'll they'll join in. But before we go, I just, just do want to ask you, because I am really interested in your process in learning stuff. You, uh, I find it fascinating. You, you take online courses on subjects you're interested in, and you have basically just, you just study stuff. You are reading thousands of pages of, of studies. I saw binders on your desk of, you know, uh, obscure scientific studies. That is something you do constantly. Well, I enjoy that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, in a way, I've always been a student, and the material that's online now, my ability to uh, have experts come and meet with me and help me when I'm confused, I'm very, very lucky. And starting in uh, 2005, uh, I set aside five or six half days uh, a year to do those educational sessions. And that's, you know, I needed to understand ice melting and coral reef stein and climate models and carbon capture. So it was pretty broad uh, with, with an amazing amount of reading. Uh, and what was the so, first book you started with on understanding climate and weather? Well, there's a lot of books, but the one that uh, was the most basic was called Weather for Dummies. And, <laughs> you know, the title is kind of ironic because anybody who's interested in learning how weather works is no dummy. I mean, you have to be a very curious person. Uh, they do a very good job of minimizing the concepts like, okay, the air at various temperatures holds different amounts of water. And that, you know, kind of explains clouds and why it rains where it rains. And they actually do, do a super job. I just uh, love that you started out with weather for dummies, which is, you know, we all know the series. So. Yeah, it, it really, the ones I've tried, uh, have have been really great. And, you know, nobody should be embarrassed uh, uh, reading that kind of a book in public. I know when I, I told you this, when I, uh, I went on Jeopardy for the first time, it was the dumbed down, like, you know, celebrity version of Jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> but I panicked and I, I, I thought I should study. So I got all the, like, don't know much about history books and don't know much about geography books. They're, they're good books. All those books are very good. No, it's fun to keep learning. Uh, yeah. And, you know, climate... A lot of things will go better than we expect and some will be more difficult. So it's going to be very dynamic and, you know, we all have to enjoy the, the learning journey we're going to be on. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster uh, is Bill's uh, book and it really is. It's a fascinating read. It's funny uh, and just uh, it is encouraging. It, 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 it's such a massive problem and it seems so insurmountable. And yours is the first book I've read where... I, you sort of see a road potentially through it and um, a difficult road, but a, a fascinating one and one you're obviously 
making possible. Uh, so thank you for, for talking to us. I want to thank everybody in Seattle and around the country and the world who uh, is watching. I want to thank Seattle Arts and Lectures for making this possible. Uh, the book again, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Yeah, all right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Anderson. This online event was presented by Seattle Arts and Lectures on February 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>